the first part of our text in Second Kings 15 over those in more detail. So I thought let's read that account and then we'll kind of go back to the first Second Kings and uh, deal with the chapter as a whole. So if you'd stand and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 26 and we'll read this chapter. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was sixty years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was sixty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty-two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father, Amaziah, had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines, and broke down the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jabnok, and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod, elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, and against the Arabians, who lived in Nebo, and against the Nebuites, uh, and the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, where he became very strong, basically restoring at least the king of Judah back to uh, basically the Davidic, uh, son Solomon's borders, right? Uh, verse 9, Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner of gate and at the valley gate, and at the angle fortified them, and built towers in the wilderness, and cut out many cisterns, where he had large herds, both in the Shephala, and in the plain, and he had farmers and wine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war, in divisions according to the numbers of the muster made by Jael, the secretary of Baasiah, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. A number of the heads of the father's house of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones of slinging. In Jerusalem he made engines, admitted by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. Well, kind of how the movies are where they have you know, things that can swing these catapults and things like that. They can swing arrows and stones, right? And his fame spread far. He was marvelously helped till he, till he was strong. So just a, a great, something you don't read too often in Second King, right? Things are going pretty well. But we have the word but. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, well, there's, and not that they were necessarily men of valor in a uh, military sense, but they uh, were uh, not afraid. They were, they were uh, bold to do this, because you know, this was something that they could lose their lives over, right? And they withstood King Uzziah to his face, and said, it is, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Though 
sanctuary, but you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he heard himself he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. So at this point, he, he realizes he's still wrong. Well. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house. For he was excluded from the house of the Lord, and Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. But the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos wrote. And again, if you, there's accounts of all this in with Uzziah. And Isaiah, and Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. For they said, "He is a leper." And Jotham his son reigned in his place. Maybe seated. So I thought that that was uh, an interesting account that we wanted to uh, give you a little bit better idea of what's going on here. And of course, as we go to chapter fifteen. The very first thing we notice is that Uzziah is called Azariah in that book. So get that squared away. Uh, that we're talking about Uzziah in the first part of chapter 15 of Second Kings. Alright, let's just review. Last week, uh, we saw Jeroboam II was a successful king in the north, uh, but none of that had any bearing on how the Lord viewed him. Uh, what we were noticing here is that, uh, the evil kings uh, might do some pretty wonderful things, might be strong, much like Uzziah was strong here, Jeroboam was that like that in Israel, almost brought the orders back to this, uh, how they were under Solomon. But at the end of the day, he was an idolater, and so the Lord, uh, through the word of God, just dismisses him in that sense, because it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh if you are not a faithful servant of the Lord. And so that's why we read if the, the king looked like David, he didn't look like the first Jeroboam, because at the end of the day, that's, that's a spiritual thermometer, that's all that matters. We also saw that Elijah is successful if we are obeying the Lord, not being around well in the flesh, uh, which again kind of coincides with what you said. To be successful in the flesh only makes us like a naked native, with the question on his head, not ready to meet the Lord. Now, if you were here last week, that where that come from? Well, we're not about any missionary who was preaching uh, a tribe of people who, for the most part, didn't wear clothes. And this one native guy had uh, found a, a discarded corset from laid out a, uh, a white or some sort of uh, you know woman out of oil, and found it and looked fancy to him. So he come through the service wearing this on his head like he's somebody. And of course, it, it was used to illustrate that. But when we think we can please the Lord through our works, no matter how righteous we think they might be, we all we're doing is shaming ourselves or making that making matters worse. And so that's some of the things that we covered last week. It's what's clear as we read, and, and if you've read through chapter 15 this week, uh, you know, I've entitled the, the latter days of Israel because uh, especially when it comes to the northern tribes, things here in the next three chapters really start to speed up. And you can notice here we, we cover like four kings, boom, 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 because things are going uh, quickly because in a matter of 30 
40 years, uh, much of the nation will be carried off into a captivity. There'll be a little bit left that they soon will fall as well. And so the writer has kind of hit the fast forward button when it comes to the northern tribes. And it's that it's kind of as if it's all irrelevant because they've sinned away the covenant blessings and their days are numbered for judgment. And we've talked about that as well. And in fact, from the death of Jeroboam the second that we studied last week, it's only about 30 years until Assyria comes begins to deport the citizens. Talk some of the uh, citizens we'll see here in a moment. Uh, at first, though, in chapter 15, we read about Azariah, the king of Judah, Uzziah in Second Chronicles. Uh, he's a farmer at heart. We see he loves the soil. So not only does he do well militarily and in fortifications, but he does uh, the agriculture part of everything going very well. Uh, in New York, I spent a lot of years on the farm and uh, really didn't give farming much of a thought until uh, I moved to New York and, and had farmers in my uh, congregation and to, to see the science behind it, to see the hard work behind it and, and all the things. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, work. Uh, not, not a lot of payoff off the company, but, but as far as just uh, what it takes to grow things out of the soil or to, to properly uh, have animals. It's just an amazing study. And so I kind of understand Isaiah a little bit here. I, I can understand that and, uh, because uh, you know, of my experience in that field. But um, it's interesting that he is said to serve the Lord all his days, but like we've seen so often, not quite like David. He, he was a good king, but not like David. And of course, we see why. because at, at the end of the day, he fell into idolatry. And for all of David's sins, he was never, he never did that. He was always faithful to the Lord, to the Lord alone. And uh, so we read in Second Chronicles that he, because uh, we don't read this in Second Second Kings, but that he was became a leper because of his sin in going into the temple. He was not a priest and doing things that only the priests were allowed to do. And we'll talk about why that was so awful in just a moment. So after he had done great things for the country, he becomes very strong. No doubt he was very popular as a king, at least up to that point. And the problem is he begins to think that he is worthy of his accomplishments. He begins to assume that the Lord is on his side rather than is he on the Lord's side. And so he thinks he can walk at the temple and do what only the priests had authority to do. Now what's interesting in Second Chronicles is that we are told that he, that he is lifted up in pride, it says, to the point of his destruction. And it's interesting, we start comparing him with all the different kings that we have read about here over this, these last couple of books. We would assume for the Bible to say that he was lifted up in pride to his destruction, that he has done some really awful thing. Um, you know, just like Solomon, uh, he, in the latter part of his life, falls into idolatry. And what an awful, ignominious way to end your life. Um, and so you, you kind of think, well, he's, he's uh, later, a little bit later on in chapter 15, we come across one of the kings of Israel, down in verse 17, 
Washington, who uh, when he would go into war and capture a city, he would rip, he would cut the uh, cut the ribbon open. So you think if, if you've done something to your destruction, well, surely this is what you've done. You've done something really, really bad. What we read about here is that his great sin that brings down the swift wrath and judgment from the Lord is that he worships God at the temple. He offers incense. There's a form of worship. Now, to be fair, we know that in reality he's not worshiping God at all because he's disobeying the Lord while he does it. Testament 
those 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 he loves. That for a, a believer to openly defy the Lord in some way, and from a true believer who openly defies the Lord or disobeys the Lord in some way, is that this virtue is the name of Christ. That's why we have church discipline, because we have to dissociate ourselves from those who do not walk after the way. And so, being a believer, God corrects him. And in so doing, teaches Israel and teaches us a lesson. It's important how we approach God. It's important that we obey Him as best we can by the Word of God. It's certainly a message into a lot of churches today who need to listen because they seem to have little concern for how they worship and serve the Lord and whether they do it according to the Word of God. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm a, a, a pastor, a theologian, and a you know, generalist since, since uh, that understands that not every church has to look alike, has to have their services don't have to look alike. And that's not what we're talking about here. I believe we have a certain amount of freedom in the, some of the, in the music and, in, 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 and some of the things we do as a church, right? But, but they've got to be based on the scriptures. They certainly can't be contrary to the scriptures. They've got to be things that honor the Lord and His Word and don't dishonor Him. Uh, it's not unlike a Christian, I, I put in quotes, a, a Christian writer who recently told his class that even if God revealed irrefutably to him that he is sovereign, just as Calvinism teaches, and this is him speaking, that he, in that election, uh, that he has definitely elected some to be saved while passing by others, the teacher says, even if God reveals this to me, he speaks it to me, so I know that is the true doctrine. He says, I wouldn't worship a God like that. Because he's already determined in his mind what he thinks is right, and, what, and, and so he's dismissed the election, so that even, and he admits it, even if God told me, yeah, it's true. That's how I save. So I want no part of it. He, he has... He has, they say, well, why did the Lord strike him dead? Well, I'm going that guy's a believer. We think, well, again, why God does what he does is his business, but, and I've known some people who have said that. And I'm the person who, because I was saved when I was Arminian, I know a lot of Arminians, so I believe you're saved. I don't think that necessarily has any bearing on whether you're saved or not. But when you start saying that if God doesn't do things the way I want him to do it, I'm, I'm finished. That's a pretty good indication that you're on dangerous ground. That you're not saying, Lord, help me to worship you, to approach you, to serve you as you have revealed. Help me, give me strength to do that. It's like, Lord, this is how I want things to be. Now you need to hop on board. And I don't see Christians doing that. True Christians. Now I know that we all, none of us obey perfectly, but in our hearts we understand what is right. We want to. We know we should. This is why we try to take care to teach the whole counsel of God here at the church, because we are responsible to know and obey it. We cannot worship and serve what we do not know. You cannot be a Christian if you're not going to grow in the knowledge of, of the. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You cannot honor the Lord if you have decided it. 
that this is what I believe Christianity should be. You determine what God is, like we just read about, and what he should expect of you. Your own wisdom has determined how you shall live. You, you, you just can't do that. As a Christian, it doesn't work. Doing what your heart tells you to do, when it's not a result of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God, I think it's an abomination to the Lord. But again, especially when it's delivering. Well, when you say, look, I, I just don't care. This is how I'm going to do things. I don't care what God or anybody else thinks. That's why a lot of what we, uh, I get this, in fact, I get somewhat disheartened when I see a lot of what passes for Christianity today in our culture, in our churches, on the radio, the bookstores, Christian TV, and sometimes they even our own lives, right? Because we know that we sometimes don't do well. But I think we see this in the culture because a lot of things being said and done today have no scriptural basis, in some cases are contrary to it. And so it's no, it should be no surprise. It's interesting, just because something claims to be Christian or has Jesus' name stamped on it, doesn't mean that the Lord has sanctioned it. Again, we always, the word of God is always what we use to determine our things. Um, and I don't think that the, the Lord tolerates people who uh, will disregard it. Because people who love the Lord with all their hearts won't settle for unbiblical or non-biblical teaching. And again, it's not to say we can't be fooled sometimes, we can't go into air, doctrinal air. But we don't deliberately do so. The next thing we learn is that the severity of the punishment, and I, I think what it tells us is that God has appointed a priest uh, as a mediator between God and man. So why was it so bad if the king did this? Because in the Old Testament, the, the, those two offices were completely separated, and it was forbidden that the king would take on the duties of the priest. So why was it such a big deal? Because uh, the priest had to typify the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way that someone could come as a mediator, and it was the priest. It was, of course, the high priest. There's a clear line drawn between the king and the priest for that reason. Only in the Lord Jesus Christ do those two offices come together. Christ is the king and the high priest. And together, they present a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the only Old Testament exception was the Jehovah. Isn't it, right? Yeah. And what's interesting about him, as Hebrews tells us, is that yes, he was a king, and he was a priest, but not after the order of um, the Levites. Because, uh, the, the, and why? Well, because it's two different covenants. And, uh, the, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that when there's a change of priesthood, there must necessarily be a change of covenants. So the fact that, he's, so what he's saying here is that Melchizedek is a clear picture of Jesus Christ, the king priest, because we live under the new covenant, not, not the old covenant. So we don't have priests at the order of Levi's. Because it's a different covenant doing different things.
whereas among other things, muddy uh, enough the type of Christ. And so the Lord says, no way, this is what we have to do. And we've seen that before. I think when Moses struck the rock, he messes up the type of the rock's already been struck once. Now we just speak to it. Christ only died once. And now we uh, come and we can pray to him. We don't, he doesn't have to be re-crucified, right? So those, I think it's the same idea there. In our, our text in, in uh, verse 11 through, and 12, we read, um, Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Just before that, we read how that the fourth uh, child king from Jehu was killed and came to his, that, that bloodline came to an end. And as we, I think we said this even last week, the Bible loves to point out when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen, and here it happens. Uh, just like it says, so, and so it came to pass. And I always like to point those things out. That the Lord is the voice behind what's going on. Um, he told Jehu that he only gets four generations uh, of descendants to sit on the throne, and that's what he gets. And of course... The reason I point that out is because as we read through scripture, we read about this so often because all the promises of God, all the predictions, all the prophecies come true, and we kind of get used to it. You know, it happens and we move on and we don't, we're not as awe as, uh, struck as we ought to be. I was reading about a man, uh, called Wishart, who was a, uh, reformer in Scotland in the mid-1500s, so kind of early on in, in the Reformation. And uh, the Catholics were going to burn him at the stake, and they had him in the town square, and the Catholic cardinal who was in charge of all this, they decorated the whole outside of the building he's on, and there's a window there that he sent to watch it, because they made big things out of this. And of course, it was done to make sure they stayed in line, you know, scare people in line. And they tied uh, powder bags on them so they would explode. And, and the idea was that it would uh, maybe be a quicker end, but in this case, they all exploded. He's still alive. Still burning. And uh, while all this is taking place, he kind of looks up at the cardinal and may, basically makes a prediction, uh, you know, how, you know, whatever, that in uh, soon... You'll be hanging out of that window that you're watching me uh, suffer. And, you know, people just, you know, whatever. And uh, so, turns out, about three months later, some men break into this cardinal's uh, building, kill him, and uh, whenever they come on to know what was going on, they come his body out of the window so that they could see it. And, now, I don't know if it, it might have been a self a fulfilling prophecy. Somebody heard that guy say that and said, let's go make that come true. My thing was the case. It might have been a case where maybe, you know, he just was moved by the Holy Spirit to say that. I don't know. But we look at that and we say, wow, that was an amazing fulfillment of, of this guy's prophecy. Well, 
understanding. But I want us to kind of train ourselves to, when we read about these things in Scripture, and the word of God, real prophecy and real fulfillment, that we have the same awe. That it's just, don't just pass this off, and so it came to pass. Because it's happened so often, we're used to it. No, this reminds us that God is in control of every moment of every day, and I can rest in Him, and I don't have to worry about things. At least not in a sinful way. I, you know, I can sleep at night. I can peace and joy in my heart. We just can't dismiss them. Well, we also know that the prophet Hosea prophesied during this time. Remember, he's the one who had to marry a unfaithful wife, really a harlot, who uh, later on cheats on her. To illustrate what the Israel has done to the Lord, and this is northern Israel, and so, as a prophet, he's kind of living out by having an unfaithful wife. He's living out the fact that Israel is that unfaithful wife to the Lord. And uh, it's no surprise then that uh, by the time that we get to chapter 17 of Second Kings, that the Lord equates idolatry with spiritual adultery. Um, Hosea 13. Ten. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king of princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took it away in my wrath. It might be a little hard to understand what he's talking about, but a lot of people think that the, the section that we're in now kind of is what Hosea is talking about, because as we read this, after we get done in, in verse 8, done with Zechariah, or Uzziah. Zechariah reigns a little bit. He's murdered. Shalom takes his place. He reigns a little bit longer. Then Mahanaim comes along. And he, uh, well, he, he, I think, close Shalom. Um, reigns in his place. He, he has a, a decent reign, I think 20 years or so. And then, you know, he dies. And then Nehemiah, uh, takes up that, uh, over him. And then uh, he's killed by you got to kind of keep all these straight. And then he's raining. And so uh, some say that what Hosea is saying there is there's a couple of ways that could have been worked out. We're seeing it here in our text. Either the Lord is letting instability kind of reign, kind of tended, where one king reigns for a little bit that he removes him, puts another king, he's no better, he puts another king. That was certainly a, a it was not good for the nation to, to have this going on. Or, we get to chapter 17, uh, the Assyrian king will come in and he will take away the one king and give him a puppet king. And of course, eventually he'll become the king. But either way, it all kind of see it being fulfilled. In a, let's see here. Galilee, all the land of Bethlehem, and carried the people, chapter 
to Assyria. When Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against people, the son of Benaliah, and struck him down, and so forth. Um, and so what we find out is that now things are getting very close to the end, and uh, what happens is that the Bible will say, in these, in these days, the Lord began to let the king of Syria, or the king of Assyria, to different places, come in and start taking uh, land away. Start taking people away. And so, verse 29, which some of those things we're not real familiar with, but over in Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles 5, I didn't put that on the board here, so I yeah, it says, But they built faith with the Lord God of their fathers and poured after the gods of the people of the land, whom God had destroyed before them. So, this is the same time period. So, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pur, king of Assyria, <coughs> The spirit of Tilgah, Joshua, King of Assyria, that we just read about. And he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Elah, Hamar, Hira, and the uh, river Gozan to this day. So, what we find is that this king is coming in, and he's taking land away, taking, and taking the Jews away, and bringing them into his land, and deporting them. And part of that were the, the uh, on the east side of Jordan where the three tribes are listed here, we read about, remember, who stayed on that side of Jordan. They were the first to go, you might say, when the land started, when the Lord started deporting some of the Jews during this time period. So, that gives you an idea of uh, some places that that's primarily what he's referring to there in verse 29, is that, that those, the land of those uh, three tribes there. So, just so you have some idea of where this is taking place. So it certainly would be an unforgivable mistake to see the Lord as harsh during all this time, and we've talked about this, in casting the northern tribes away into captivity for their sins, because we've been given example after example for years of how to refuse to heed his word. And we, we read, remember Amos 4, several verses there about how the Lord kept doing this and this and this, you know, famine, sickness, or all these different things, and they just kept on trucking like none of it mattered. And finally the Lord says, well, I've given you every opportunity to repent. So never think that the Lord is somehow a mean God. Uh, there is only one acceptable uh, action of mankind, and that is to worship the Lord with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. And anything short of that is uh, hell. The wrath of God comes upon it. And it doesn't apply to everybody. And we need to always keep that in mind, because there are you know, certainly people out there who think that they can stand up and look at some of the actions of God and say, well, uh, that's uh, no, I don't think that's what God's going too far there. I thought I heard a, I saw a video of a woman preacher. Again, that's a kind of She was a reading First Corinthians six, where it of course speaks about uh, the wrath of God coming upon Paul. Says you know people. In other words, you know, he lists several sins, including homosexuality, and says such for some of you, right? So she's reading this, and she leaves out some of it. You can kind of guess what she leaves out. And she says, you notice I, I didn't read that when I, when I uh, was reading through that. I skipped that part. She says, because
to use that word. It was, look, it's like itch. Or, you know, like I can't read that. It's Paul there. He, you know, Paul is shooting some, some slur against Paul for, for writing it. And she, you know, she's supposed to be a preacher. And so, Right? Well, 
Frazier, I was given a similar situation. If you just, look at you, I don't even expect perfection. If you just honor me alone and, and will not serve other gods, I will give you, your, your wives will have children, you won't have any miscarriages, your crops will never fail. You will live in virtual paradise. That's what you could in a simple world. And it's like Israel said, no thanks. We'll worship the bells and have our, have our sensuality and all that kind of stuff. And yet, as we read here, the Lord leaves that remnant. The Lord does have mercy on some, a small portion. One thing the Old Testament teaches us is how that when man is left on his own, he will never be faithful to the Lord. And this is picked up uh, in Romans 9, starting in verse 24, where it says, even us, because this whole chapter is about election and how that being a Jew, a physical Jew, never saved anybody. It was always according to election. So he says here, starting in verse 24, uh, even us who we called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call by my name, and her who was not beloved I shall call beloved. So the Jews you know, who were living in sin in the northern kingdom, but Hosea comes along and says, someday the Lord is going to call a people who are not his people now, the Gentiles, he's going to call some of them. And they're going to be called his people. And they're going to be called by the Lord. Verse 26. And in that very place, there, where it is said of it, to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So, you know, in other lands, it, they were not called God's people, but someday there would be those who were God's people in those places. And Isaiah, another prophet, uh, living soon after this, uh, says a similar thing concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, and they were, and they are, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So, it was, you know, some people get all excited Jesus God's special people. Well, I mean, they were. But if you are elected unto salvation, who cares? If, if you're a Jew who's going to die in your sins of the world, who cares? I want to be uh, election unto salvation. I don't want a, a land over in Palestine. I don't want to want a future over there because that's going to end. I want to be saved. And since what Isaiah here is saying, that the Lord's going to carry out his sins without the way, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So the Jews were no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. The ones who were, were the ones that God, through his mercy, brought out of that and brought them to himself, and that's us. We're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. Except the difference is that God chose to bestow love and mercy upon us, all undeserved. What shall we say then, verse 30? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on 
So they misused the law as a way to earn salvation and stumble right over completely missed the point. This is why Israel teaches us of how election works. Being a Jew is not what's saved. The majority of Jews have and will be lost. Just as the majority of Gentiles will be lost. But a few survivors, you know, the KGB says a very small remnant. Right. Uh, because that's what it is. Uh, in comparison to those who have rejected the Lord, God has shown mercy on some. And so we owe everything to the Lord's electing love. We'll stop there today. Any questions or comments before we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us this day. And we just pray, Lord, that this might be a day in which you bless us, that you speak to our hearts, that you lift yourself up mighty in our eyes, that we might uh, enjoy uh, and serve you, Lord, as you would think in a way that pleases you, that we would be a people that are full of peace. And uh, we're strong in the, in the faith. Lord, help us to be an example to those around us. Help us to be an example to each other. Lord, we need that. We need encouragement. And we just pray.